This is the Progression Project Podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Antonson. What's up, folks? Thank you for tuning in to the Progression Project Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Antonson. Today's guest on the show is Dave Kalama. I love learning from Dave. I find that every time I walk away from a conversation with Dave, whether it's a podcast or sometimes we just talk and He's always dropping these knowledge bombs, which I think I understand. And then it takes me a week or two. I process, I get in the water, I feel what he's talking about, and it makes me a better foiler or it makes me see something differently than I had before. Um, Matt Costa and I, on his podcast, talked about one of the things that, one of the insights that Dave had, which was about how when you're downwinding and you're running the bumps, how the bumps will stop and you need to peel off and go back and didn't get that at the beginning and then finally started to see it. And then Matt brought in the science behind why that works. And now I have a whole new framework for the way that I'm looking at the ocean when I'm searching for bumps. And there's just so many of those that Dave has dropped over the course of the, the podcast that he's been on and conversations that we've had. Uh, this is a good show. We talk about how he is seeing the sport now, what he saw early on. You know, there's very few of us, there's a handful, literally a handful that have been foiling for more than a couple years. And, you know, Dave is one of the first guys to ever be on a foil, big wave. And he talks about his um, thought on where the sport would go from the beginning, what he got right, what he got wrong. And then he goes through, you know, a few years ago when he first started getting back into the new version of foiling and what he's gotten right, what he predicted accurately and and what he missed on. And it's fascinating to see the way that his mind works um, in these forward looking things. And from here, he gives us some insight on what he sees is going to happen in the future. And he also talks a lot about his design process as of late, where his inspiration and creativity come from, the way that he is approaching aging, which I think is really interesting as well. You know, a scarcity mindset, something that I feel as well. I'm 41 right now. And I know how many years do I really have left to surf my best? Because right now I feel like I'm foiling uh, the best I've ever, maybe the, maybe the best I've ever been at a sport or close to it. And how long is that going to last? And it it brings about a scarcity. And so you tend to sacrifice other things to get more water time because you feel like there's only so many days that you're going to get this level of performance. And and Dave's feeling that as well. And it was really really interesting to get his thoughts on that. I think you guys are going to love this show. And I'm very grateful that Dave came back on again, as always. Um, and I, I think that, uh, everybody's going to learn something here. I know I did before we jump in a couple notes. I have been on the lift 150 V2 surf for the last couple weeks and I love it. You know, I got the 200 V2 and there's some things that are good about it, but it just didn't, it didn't do what I thought it was going to do. And it turns pretty darn good. It gets real pitchy in some, in some places and it didn't pump. It's got a lot of drag on the pump for me. And I didn't want to go with the 150 because I thought it was going to be too small, but then I hopped on the 120 HA, which 
quickly became my favorite foil for a lot of things. And I was like, this is so good. I got to give the 150 a, a chance. So I called up TJ at Big Wins and 150 came out and it's really good. It pumps better than the 200 for me by a long shot and it turns so much better. It doesn't feel like it has some of the pitchy feels that the 200 had for me. And it's pretty unreal. I just talked to Kel from Foiling Magazine and he's feeling the same thing on the 150 as well. He said that it's kind of taken over and he's picking the 150 more than anything else right now, which is which is really cool. So if you guys haven't tried that yet or you're looking to, to get a new feel, that's a really good one. Um, I just chopped down my Armstrong 1250 and you know, there's a lot of videos online, people chopping things. The way that I like to chop foils is I have, because I shape boards, I have a, one of the Makita auto buffers, you know, like the big sander that they use in, in most of the glassing shops. And that's the easiest way. There's, there's a setting where you can just uh, push a button, lock it on. I put it upside down and basically you're just fine grinding the, the excess, whatever you want to pull off the wing off. And, and it's really easy to do. So I don't know if it, if it's worth it, if all you're going to do is chop wings, but that is uh, you can get it so detailed too, um, and bevels, angles, everything. Probably took me five minutes to chop the twelve fifty. Looks good, and so that's a that's a pro tip for you guys. Um, the Makita grinding. I'm sure there's a bunch of other ones, but I know that the Makita is really good, top of the line. So that's pretty rad. And I've got the Armstrong uh, A plus system on the way. I think. I've 1550 for winging and the 1050 because I've never ridden it. Everybody talks about it's the best surf wing from back in the day. I just feel like that's a wing that I have to foil so that I understand what so many people are feeling. I know that's a little bit older now, but uh, I know that's a really good surf foil. And I, I can't wait to feel that one. So that's on the way. And Big Winds just started carrying Armstrong as well. So um, they've been super supportive of the show. Uh, Give TJ a shout if you guys want to order anything. Bigwins.com is the website. All right, let's dive into the show with Dave Kalama. As always, hit me with questions, comments, or feedback, and I appreciate it. I've got a couple other shows that I've recorded recently. Um, Dylan Fish and Julia Mancuso just came on the show, which was awesome, and a Navy SEAL buddy also recorded recently and and that one i've got to do some editing on because we had some weird zoom stuff that's going to take me a little bit longer because I'm, I'm kind of stretched for time right now but uh two good shows coming up hopefully in the near future so thank you guys and be well dave thanks for coming back on the podcast how are you i'm good eric it's, it's nice to be with you again and i always enjoy our conversation so i'm really excited to uh to get into it. Yeah, um, me too. And and I, I have to say that over the past, I don't know, a couple of months, we've been talking a little bit more. And I really appreciate all of the insight that you've given me. There's so much of it that I'm excited to share. Um, because I've learned so much from those conversations. So um, really excited to do this. So thanks for doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, we can sort of have the audience be the third member of our conversation and, and share some of that and, and 
you know, wow, I think my role is to share information. I'm just as open to learning and with as much experimentation as you do. Um, yeah, I'm hoping to find out a couple nuggets myself. <laughs> I don't know. I will, we'll see about that. Um, all right. So here's where I want to start off. In our last conversation, you talked about how your understanding, um, how, how you see foiling, have seen foiling go from early toe days to the epiphany of we can ride these in much smaller waves. Now, you've been doing the new version of foiling for about four years. How has your perception of foiling changed from the beginning to our last conversation until now? Because some of the conversations that we've had, you you seem to have been, um, oh shoot, I always do this, man. <laughs> I always do that, damn it. Sorry, uh, and I was on a roll there. So no worries. <laughs> there, there's been an evolution going on in the gear and in the way that people are utilizing the gear. How is your mindset changing, and what has that done for the way that you see the sport developing? Well, kind of looking back at the landscape um, of the last four years, there's there's a there's obviously a few things I sort of anticipated might happen. Um, just because I have that long base to kind of reference in regards to foiling, um, but there's a there's a few I didn't. Um, the inherent danger that I thought was going to be a very large barrier to get over um, seems to not have been as significant as I thought it would be, especially after some of the initial injuries you you saw posted online and some of the stories being told um, I was worried that it and, and you know I think justifiably so the concern was real and people were getting hurt but with any new sport none of us knew what we were doing and so we didn't even know what to avoid like you know the saying goes you don't know what you don't even know well now we kind of know what we didn't know which means we're able to avoid a lot of the hazards that inherently come along with foiling um, and thus make it much safer um, sport, know how to approach and manage those risks as best as possible. Um, so that's sort of one thing without diving too deep into it. And the other would be the wing foiling. Um, I don't think any of us saw that coming along and having such a big influence and, and, seems to be well on its way to becoming the biggest aspect of foiling um, or self-propelled foiling, um, you know, that sort of, that I didn't see coming. And it's really, again, lowered the, the boundary of entry for so many people and made it so much more accessible, um, which I think is, is a fantastic thing. You know, and I, if I'm being honest with you and the listeners, it's, it's not my most passionate aspect of the sport, but that doesn't blind me to how great I think it is. And I, I truly mean that. I think it's such a positive um, aspect of our sport and exemplifies how many potential avenues and applications there are to hydrofoiling. 
And anything that gets more people into this sport and allows them to experience the incredible sensation of boiling through the water, um, I think is a fantastic thing. So I'm really excited about the, the wing foiling or the hand, hand kite foiling, however you want to refer to it, um, has got me very excited because I know that's going to grow our sport, which only means more enthusiasm, more development, um, a more viable means to support myself and my family. So just so many positive aspects of, about that. Um, now those are the two things that kind of jump out at me. What did you call correctly? Um, the downwinding, um, we saw as a potential, just incredible phenomenon way back in the day before we even figured it out. When we would go towing up at Piahi with the foils, um, a lot of times it would get windy while we were up there. And so on the way home, it, it would be blowing 20, 25, maybe 30. And we would tow down and we'd try and connect a couple bumps. And, and you know, you might get two, three, maybe four bumps. And you could see the potential, but it was obvious that our wave riding foils um, were not the answer or or weren't effective in trying to really connect a lot of bumps together. But it was so obvious that, wow, there's something there. And we did, myself and Laird and a couple of the other guys, did start to put a little effort into it. But my enthusiasm for foiling was starting to wane a little bit or subside because I was really getting into stand-up paddleboarding at the time. So this would be the early 2000s, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I lost some of my focus there. Plus, in that version that we were doing, you had, to, you had to have the jet skis, the boots, the bindings. So it was really a different version with with uh, not great accessibility to everyone. So unfortunately, I, you know, I admit I dropped the ball on that. And in and, and hindsight, really wish I would have continued on because we, we started making a few prototypes specifically for downwinding and, and not about wave riding at all. But like I say, we didn't have any big breakthroughs. What did those prototypes look like? Um, you know, obviously the, the initial thing was just go to what, what, uh, gliders were doing. So much higher aspect, um, was, was a very obvious one. But part of the problem with our creative limitations at that time was we were using pre-paneled G10 fiberglass, you know, a version of fiberglass that mm-hmm. was really stiff. Um, but it was it was only available in the thickness of what was being used for slalom fins in windsurfing. And we never, or I didn't, I should say, keep it specific to myself, never really thought about making thicker panels because it didn't seem like we needed it because every everything we were using it for, um, i.e. riding waves, it was more than adequate. So the thought of creating more lift via thicker foil sections hadn't dawned on me yet. So, you know, and that was sort of Alex Seguera's at GoFoil's big breakthrough was these, these cross sections are creating foils that created so much more lift 
at low speed that now, you know, that was the massive game changer. One of the, the big reasons we are where we are. Yeah. For anyone who doesn't know what G10 is, it is the material that Kane makes his tails out of from a very similar process um, to what Dave's talking about there. Um, why do you think the sport, and you mentioned it a little bit, and I am someone else who, when you were down in Costa Rica, this has got to be five or six years ago now, or no, probably, probably five years ago, and you were at the beginning of the foil journey and mm-hmm. talking about how awesome i just thought it was going to be the most dangerous sport in the world it just seemed it seemed kind of ridiculous to me at the time obviously i was very wrong i can admit that but i also went into it thinking it was going to be much more dangerous and now there is the whole we know what we know now as you said gear has improved mm-hmm. but i would have lost a bet on the amount of injuries and, and significant injuries that would have happened, especially now as guys are taking to the air and starting to get radical in sections. And I mean, if I look at just what we're doing, you know, uh, Mike Pedigo and I, um, if you'd have told me a couple years ago that neither knock on wood right now, but neither one of us would have had a, a bad injury yet. I, I would have taken the uh, under on that for sure. Um, yeah. why, what did we miss so bad? Is, is gear getting better? Is, is, is it not as dangerous as we think? Um, what do you think about that? You know, I, I think it's in my nature to be highly conservative when it comes to danger. And this so I always the first person to surf Jaws. That's <laughs> we need to explore that a little bit. Too. I, we need to find danger a little bit, Dave. I knew that was coming. Yeah, um, I'm not gonna let you go. On I that. guess it's relative. Okay, it's relative to the people I was running with at the time. Um, <laughs> so as long as you're not might... as crazy as your crew. <laughs> exactly. It's like when you're being chased by a bear. You don't need to be faster than the bear, just the person okay. next to you. <laughs> um, in any case, um, yes, I had an extremely high respect for the danger. And quite honestly, initially, I questioned whether it was even possible. I remember seeing the videos of the guys putting them on SUP boards. And I think at that time, I was just borrowing kite foils, essentially, and putting them in SUP boards. And it was very frustrating to me to see foiling moving in that direction because I had seen such higher level performance in relation to foiling that, that it I wouldn't say it angered me, but I, I like having the insight of what I'd seen, knew that foiling was so much more than just kind of these straight lines, balancing for your life, kind of, you know, precarious situations. And uh, if you've got time for kind of a funny story. Absolutely. I decided, well, I'm going to show these guys what's up. You know, I know what's up with foiling and I know what can be done. All of flips, twists aerials all this stuff that we were doing at the time with with our boots and bindings and so i made this sup i think it was about eight two or something like that and i 
made a fitting to attach my old toe foil and I got my bindings and figured out how to attach them to the board and my boots and I was going to go figure this out and get foiling back on the right course. So in any case, my board is so large at the time, it finally dawns on me. If I turn over and I'm underwater, am I going to be able to get back to the surface because the board's <laughs> so big? I hadn't thought of that until a little. I was almost walking to the water, um, you know, and I, I had flotation, but I didn't know if I'd be able to right myself drift out and to with the paddle I, I would be able to do but what if i lost the paddle you know and i'd had a friend that had done something kind of similar with kiting he made a kite boat that he ended up turning over the seatbelt didn't release and he he almost drowned so it was i had that in my mind it's like wow i don't want that to happen to me so i had a friend paddle out with me i'm like okay i'm gonna turn myself over if I don't come back up in a couple of seconds, get down there and pull me back up and get me up. And, you know, just preparing for the worst case scenario. In any case, it worked out. It was a good laugh in the process, but I was like, okay, I can do this. I paddle out. I catch a wave. I'm thinking, here we go, man. Foil history is about to happen. And I never got off the water. I was like, oh, that's weird. That must have been a freak situation. I'll go get another one. This went on for about five waves. Never got off the water. I thought, whoa, I guess it's not possible. So very dejected, very frustrated, and, and like, I don't know. Um, it was a bummer. I guess, well, in hindsight now, my board weighed about 60 pounds of all the reinforcement for the attachment. My foil now realizing was my toe foil, not even close to the amount of lift I would need going as slow as I was going on a tiny wave. And so I figured these things out after the fact, but at the time it was really frustrating. And it was about two months later when I came across Alex and what he had developed. And uh, so I came into it with a really healthy heaping serving of, of skepticism, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, was very negative, quite honestly. And, and he and uh, Brett Lickle kind of drug me into my first couple sessions, kicking and screaming and not wanting to do it and really thinking there was nothing to it. And after my second session, I think it was, the light bulb went off and, and that was it. You know, the rest was kind of, I didn't get back on a SUP or any other kind of board for eight months straight. But uh, I went through a couple versions of my own that, didn't pan out and that's that's why i was so skeptical of where this could go so i guess with that sort of experience and that reference at every point i've held on to this i don't know i'm not sure even with the, all the experience i had it, it sort of was just ingrained in me to always think uh the danger is going to kill this sport you know mm -hmm. but uh you know i've been proven wrong a few times which is a good thing because that means the sports made a turn for the better or gone in a better direction than I anticipated, um, which is to all of our benefit. You mentioned there that the foil that you were trying which to Which I guess completely disregarded your question about <laughs> the danger, but... Uh... <laughs> That's okay. Um, you mentioned there that the foil you tried to get up on on the 
itself was was just too small. And as we see in this trend now, you you and Laird and the tow crew started off with really small foils and really big surf. And then kiting happened and there you're powered. So the lift requirements are different. And then Alex had the innovation of, you know, much higher lift, bigger foils. And now we're seeing the trend go back down towards the small. If we look at trends, um, what are you surprised about in what you're riding now versus when you started, did you think that you're going to be on the gear that you're on now? How's it, how's it feeling to you? How's it evolving? How do you see the gear landscape? And if you look at your history and what you've seen, what do you forecast for the future? You know, that that's a really interesting question because when you get something new, um, and it's an innovation and, and ultimately it performs better, you think, oh my God, this is amazing. And and it's hard to envision anything ever being better. And, and I've gone through this process so many times. You think I would be more aware of it and, and realize, oh, we're, we're not there yet. But every time you get a new foil and like I remember the EVA, Initially, it was the Kai foil and the Maliko, right? And then the Eva came along. It was like, oh, my God, this thing turns. It lives. How is it ever going to get better than this? And then the GLs came along. And it was like, oh, my God, how are things ever going to get better than this? This is amazing. But they keep getting better. And so while there's times when you're developing these products, you, you really feel confident, like, wow, I've just made a huge stride forward. And because of it, there's maneuvers that you can now do. There's speeds that you can attain that weren't attainable before whatever your latest design is. Um, and that sort of lends itself to being very, very confident. But as soon as you go back in the laboratory and you're like, okay, well, everyone else is caught up to the latest designs and what used to be really good is now just kind of middle of the road, nothing special anymore. You're like, okay, I've got to come up with, with what's next. And so that creates this sort of psychology where for a while you think, wow, I'm how smart am I? You know, I, I did that last foil and worked <laughs> better and boy, am I good, you know? And then you get back in the lab and you're like, okay, let's do it again. And you have to start, or at least what part of my process is, is you have to really critically analyze not what's right with what you've done, but what's wrong with what you've done. And what how do you are, that? how do you approach, that? how do you approach looking at what you've done wrong? And one of the things that I think makes you unique is that you're incredibly accomplished, but it doesn't seem like your ego ever gets in the way of your innovation. I don't think someone, I mean, if you look at the way that you're taking on hand paddles, things like that, that probably certain diehard surfers wouldn't want to be seen with, right? But you're innovating and revolutionizing. And so how do you take on the next part of this conversation? I want to get into your creativity and your inspiration, but mm -hmm. I think this is a good segue to kind cool. of piggyback on what you just said there and go into, you know, how, how do you assess when something's wrong and how, how do you take a look at it? What's your process? Well, to quickly kind of 
wrap up what's wrong is, you know, when things feel better, especially upon initially testing new prototypes or whatever the case is, you're looking for what's right. And, and typically you're familiar with what you expect to happen. And when it does, you interpret that as, as, oh, I got that right. I achieved what I was, you know, setting out to do. Um, but there also leaves the gap of, or the perspective of, okay, well, I was achieving those particular objectives. What objectives am I not addressing? And it might be speed. It might be initial lift. It might be high end. It might be maneuverability. It might be smoothness. I mean, there's so many dynamics going on that it really is hard to excel at all of them, but more figure out what's the, what's the right blend of compromises to be the best at most of them and, and maybe perhaps a couple of them you excel at a little more. Um, so that's where you get your kind of high aspect, really efficient, maybe upper end downwinding coils that, or pumping, or you want something that turns more. They all have to pump. They all have to be fast. And so there's very common design factors that might be consistent through a lot of foils. But then you'll see separations and outlines, foil sections, and really get into the minutia of it all that are specific to a particular application, yeah. i.e. winging, wave riding, whatever it is. And so you look at what you try and do right, because you usually have a set of anywhere from two to maybe three objectives you're trying to obtain, but there's so much going on, there might be 10 or whatever the number is that you didn't specifically address. And so while those got left on the table, um, it might be time to re-examine those and what do they have to offer to the next round of development and can they help you, you know, with speed, whatever it is. So we kind of tie that up. That's, that's sort of that. Let, let's, let's, let's stay on that for just a second. Cause I didn't mean to jump that quickly. I think there's still more meat in the foil conversation here. What are you, mm-hmm. what are you surprised about right now? that you're seeing or inspired by in new foil design and how has that changed your approach to riding? Um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited, delighted about how much faster stuff is getting. Um, and with, with that increased speed while you're, again, sort of back to what I was just saying, while your initial objective is just to figure out how to make something faster, you might be leaving some some performance holes in that design objective, meaning, okay, I made it go really fast, but now it turns horribly or it's got this weird little up and down sort of jumpiness to it. And so now while you've made big strides forward, there's still a f- couple of things you need to work out on how to smooth it out or how to how to get it to go really fast, but maybe increase the turning um, characteristics of it. So that's kind of what I'm talking about when, when you've got a couple of objectives that you're trying to work on, but you leave some stuff out of, of your primary focus. And so after that initial breakthrough, now you can come back and focus on how to make it smoother or how to make it turn better. And so I'm really encouraged with what seems to be sort of our second slash maybe third generation 
of improvements with much faster foils than we had two years ago and how they're going faster, but now they're smoother. They're getting easier to turn the combination of the front wing back wing relationship. Um, all those characteristics and, and design points that essentially it's, it's a giant menu. And I, I keep coming back to this with, with a lot of stuff is the more extreme you get with one objective, which let's say speed, you, you can make the thinnest low drag foil in the world, which will technically be the fastest. But in doing so, you've compromised so many other aspects. Let's say the, the low end and how you get up on the foil, mm-hmm. you know, which the normal foil today might be four to five miles an hour and you can get up and going but the top end might be in the upper 20s or something like that. But let's say you design a foil that's meant to work at 40 to 50 miles an hour. Well, now you're going to be needing to go 10 or 15 miles an hour to even get up onto it, right? So that's that's sort of an extreme case, but that's sort of what I'm talking about. And the more specific you get and the less compromises you make, um, the less versatility you have. So it's a giant blend of compromise to hit as many objectives or, or ch- characteristics that you need to all be present in any given design. Um, and, and thus the compromise happens. Otherwise you just end up with these super extreme versions of, of foils, be it a super turning one, but mm-hmm. um, it doesn't go very fast or one that has a great low end, but, it tops out at 15 miles an hour. So that's kind of what I mean by that in, in any regard. Um, one of the, one of the, I'm going to stop for a second before I just start rambling. Give me another question. <laughs> no, that, that resonates with me because I have been riding the lift 120 um, for the last month and it's changed my whole approach to the lines that I can draw um, distance, uh, glide distance because you're going so fast. Uh, but the stall speed is so high that I have to ride the biggest board that I ride, um, for takeoffs and in little conditions and shore runners, I might stall out four of eight getups because I just can't get the momentum, the speed I need to get back out the back in, in small surf, but then there's plenty of energy when you're out there. And so there's the sacrifice, but it, I mean, it seems like it's worth it once you're up and and going because it takes so much less cardio demand once you're riding. But, you know, if you could solve for that speed, efficiency, and turning with a stall speed of seven miles an hour instead of 10 miles an hour for me, it would be such an easier foil to ride. But uh, and, I, I don't know and if And I'm possible. sure we will get there mm-hmm. eventually. Um, but maybe that's the fourth, fifth generation of, of as an industry, kind yeah. of generally speaking now, um, we will eventually get there. And there's, there's a lot of development that we haven't gotten to yet. And it's sort of back to what I was saying earlier. At the time when you have something new, you think, oh my God, how could anything get better? But if you look back at the development of, in equipment of any sport, um, it continues to evolve. It, it, it is such a natural aspect of any life 
or whatever topic you want to address, generally the goal is to get better. And, and we do with, with experience and experimentation, we always get better. And so there are design characteristics, aspects. I hate to use the word tricks, but sometimes bells and whistles have a high functionality to them, but they are called bells and whistles because usually that's all they do is make noise and, and aren't highly effective. But every now and then a bell and whistle will come along that is highly effective and can be a game changer in design characteristics or performance. Um, so yeah, all those things are going to come. We know that if you look back at history, um, we're going to keep progressing and foils are going to keep getting better. And that will allow the performance to get better, the entry level to get better, and and just keep enhancing the sport and make it more attainable to more people, and ultimately raise the enjoyment level. Um, so I, I mean, I I guess that kind of addresses what you were saying yeah, there. Absolutely. Are you saving any of your foils? I have started. There, I have certain foils that I won't sell. I think when we look back at the sport there are going to be certain foils that'll be like having a, you know, Simon Anderson thruster from the early days or, um, you know, and, and so I'm, I'm almost looking at it like a, as the sport evolves, when we look back in 20 years, you're going to be like, Oh, you got the uni 190. The thing was iconic. Um, I don't know if it'll ever be like that, but are you looking at a historic perspective of the sport and, and saving any gear for that? Um, generally no. Yeah. I, I have done that with surfboards and usually they just end up 99.9% of the time they end up as dust collectors and die a slow death um, like a lot of the other equipment I've had. But there are a couple things that I'm, I'm I have a stand up board that was one of my first sub 12 foot boards I've held on to. I've got a couple of tow boards that uh aren't design wise you know any well i think they're revolutionary but the rest of the industry might not but just the number of large waves and experiences i've been through mm -hmm. with a couple pieces of equipment have a real emotional value and bring back so many memories when i just see him sitting on the rack there yep. but um no with with foiling not so much because it would just pile up <laughs> so much and take up so much space um and i usually need the money to, to get to the next round of either equipment or prototypes yep so i've kind of adopted a, a mentality of all right as soon as something new comes along and i like it let's get rid of the old stuff so that we can start working on the new stuff do you still have any of the foils from the first um iteration of foiling Yes, yeah, so I, I do. I did hold on to all my toe stuff, and that might have been involuntary because there's no real marketing <laughs> of people <laughs> looking to buy <laughs> boots and bindings to go foiling with. Uh, so I, that, that's you know, a collector's like item or not, right there. I did hold on to that stuff. Um, <laughs> put that on eBay. Make a fortune now. Maybe. All right, let's get into where your creativity and inspiration comes from. It's one of the things that 
when when we talk from time to time, you've always got mm-hmm. some new idea that you're, and maybe some of them we can talk about. I think there's some that you're not going to talk about yet, which uh, which is I, I understand completely. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it fires me up to just hear just how fired up you are and always pushing your design or where you think that you're seeing things that someone else isn't seeing yet. What do you draw on for inspiration? Does that, is that inherent to you? Um, do you ever think about that? Um, yes, I do think about it. And I think everyone can get to their personal creative space through a different path. Um, couple things for me got me there. And while I would always say I was slightly innovative and creative, I never at a level that I'm, I'm at right now. And a couple things really changed for me to, al- to allow that extra level of creativity kind of to be present. One of them is just age and coming to the realization that I don't need to worry about what other people think. Um, I don't care what other people think. Um, and that's really freeing when you're not guided by other people's opinions or judgment. It allows you to be a lot more creative just in that phenomenon or dynamic. Um, what and changed that to give you that freedom? Is, well, like I say, age. When when you get to a certain age, and, it, and it's at different times for different people, but I realize it doesn't matter. People's opinions don't matter because they care way less about you than, than you would ever think they do. And so to spend all this time and energy worrying about what other people think, you, you finally come to realization it's a waste of time. It really is. And so while you're younger, you want to be accepted. You, you want to be cool. You want to have the right shoes or shorts or whatever it is. At a certain point, you're like, I don't care. I don't care if someone thinks I have the right shorts on or if I've got the right brand of sandals or whatever it is. You're like, that's silly. It doesn't matter in the scheme of things. It really doesn't matter. And so that's really freeing. Just just that realization alone is very freeing. But it's tied to a lot of other things that sort of chain react or, or domino because of it. And one of them is fear. And essentially what I just described is a type of fear. The fear of being judged, the, the fear of, of not being accepted. And when you lose that fear of other people's judgment or, or whatever it is, um, now all of a sudden you don't have to work within the confines of what's expected. Um, another domino that falls with that is the fear of failure because most, most fear of failure is based on you don't want to look like a fool in front of other people. And as soon as you lose that fear of other people and, and their criticism and judgment, 
now you can lose the fear of failure. And again, you realize, well, failure is one of the most critical ingredients to finding success because it forces you to figure out what went wrong and how to make it better. When you only succeed, a lot of times you'll overlook what what was good about what you did. And you'll, you'll think, oh, it's just me. I'm good. Boy, am I good, you know? But you don't analyze what you did to have success. But when you fail, you are forced with the reality of, wow, I'm, I screwed that up. Why? And if you can just get past the, oh, what are people going to think? And you can get to the, why did I screw that up? Or what went wrong? Or how come this this design, I can tell you, I've gone through it so many times where I thought, oh, this is it. I figured it out. I am going to turn this whole thing upside down. I go out and try whatever it is I created and just shell shock, like not even close to what I thought. Um, a quick story as an example is back in the SUP days when we were really trying to figure out unlimited boards for downwinding, I thought, at the time, I did a lot of one-man canoe paddling. I thought the entry of the one-man, deep, deep V kind of displacement was what made them so fast. And I'll put an SUP planing-style tail on it. And I thought, that's it. You know, nobody's done this. I've never seen anything like it. I am just going to blow this thing wide open. And so at the time, I was working with Mac, uh, excuse me, Mark Raffhorst, and... We made one up. I went out and tried it, and I was actually a little slower than my previous board. <laughs> and it just sent me into a tailspin, and I thought, well, maybe maybe the rocker wasn't right or the finish on the sanding. Or it, couldn't, it couldn't be the design. I was really <laughs> trying to find something else other than the design to be wrong. So we made another one. Same result. And I was just perplexed. And I was up at... Uh, the kind one day going through some really old surf magazines and I came across a picture of a paddleboard, an old prone paddleboard from the sixties that looked exactly like what I had just created now. And we're in the, Oh, early two thousands, I think. And, uh, I'm like, Oh my God, that's, that's it. That's my board. I've got to find out more about it and find out what, what came of it. Anyway, I find out it's, Mickey Mignot's had designed it and, and I happened to be a friend of Mickey. So I was able to call him and I said, Mickey, Mickey, I just saw this picture of a board you made back in the sixties. And I've been coming up with the same design for stand up paddling and, and uh, tell me about it. What, what, what was your experience? And he goes, Oh, that piece of, sh you know, rhymes with it. <laughs> and he, he, came to the same conclusion I did. And I was like, oh, my God, am I so glad to hear that. Um, just to share that that level of failure and someone understand. And I said, well, okay, the you know million-dollar question is, Mickey, what's the answer? What would you come up with? And he, he said to me, Dave, he goes, however you go into the water is how you want to exit the water. And he goes, if you come in planing, go out planing. If you come in displacement, go out displacement. And 
you know, with his experience and knowledge and time around water, I just, I took it as, uh, as law, but not knowing for myself. So I immediately made some prototypes and boy, was he right. And so huge lesson learned on hydrodynamics, board design, um, and things of that nature. And also realizing and acknowledging that there's very few things that we are creating now that haven't been created already or that someone doesn't know about them. And maybe what their objective was is different from what we're trying to achieve now. So in their eyes or their version, it didn't work. That doesn't mean it won't work for what we're trying to achieve now. And so you really have to go back through everything that's been done and find out is there an application to what we're trying to achieve because because there almost is some aspect even of the biggest failures um in my experience that they have something to offer moving forward um in design and and i'm still finding out there's so many weird kind of contradictions to hydrodynamics and while it seems quite simple initially when you increase the speeds and foil section from the sort of the middle to the tip and distances from the bottom and how the bottom comes into play, um, distances from the surface and how much influence um, a foil that doesn't even break the surface can be sucking so hard. It can literally suck air from the surface down through the water a few inches to attach to your foil. Um, little kind of weird things like that that you wouldn't necessarily think possible and, and seem to break the hydrodynamic laws do exist and there's so much of that I know that I don't know and and I'm trying to find out um, tip vortices it's, it's all you could keep going for days about all these little things that have a big influence on how our foils work and yada 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 anyway so the question was <laughs> how do you get to that place of being creative? Right. Um, so you lose fear. And so dropping the fear, yep. losing the fear of failure, um, losing the fear of other people's judgment. And what that did for me was create a, a door to walk through and realize I've just gotten rid of all the limits. I am no longer shaping a surfboard. I can start from scratch what what are the things I'm trying to achieve here and come at it with a whole new set of fresh eyes, a whole new set of criteria of what I'm trying to achieve. Um, and while, yes, we're interacting with waves, um, yes, a lot of things like it are similar to surfing, um, it is not surfing. And it, as soon as you spend any time around this, you realize, surfboard design and how boards interact with water in a conventional surfing sense have nothing to do with what we're doing. And so coming to that realization early on, um, combined with the philosophical uh, freedoms, allowed me to really come at it with a fresh set of eyes and not be afraid to create something completely out of the box and not be afraid to fail, not be afraid of judgment and get myself going down a path, even though I'm not going to say just because I had all those advantages going for me, 
I nailed it. I didn't. Right. Um, I still had a lot of lessons to learn along the way, but it allowed me to go down a completely new path that gave me the opportunity to learn things I might not have had I not unencumbered myself um, from some of the fear I was carrying. Well, I will say that you've nailed it now. I have your 4.6 80-liter SUP that I wing on, and that's a great board. It's a really good board. And since I got it, I've had a couple buddies pick them up, and they love them um, as well. well. It's cool when you see something I, that I works. I appreciate that, but I really appreciate hearing things like that. But in my mind, because I've already gone one or two generations past that, I look back at that and think, wow. What was I thinking? You know? <laughs> it's, it's good. And, and, it's but good. Uh, it's, it's part of the process. It's very normal. I'm sure every designer goes through that. Yeah. Um, but that's, that's what keeps us fired up, you know? So you talked about removing some of the barriers for creativity, mm -hmm. but you didn't really talk about the inspiration for creativity there. I mean, you, you could remove barriers from 900 people and, and probably 99 of them still don't just go out there and, and get creative. You have to have the fire to do that. Where does that come from? Um, you know, okay. So another thing that I think, um, part of my character and not unique in any sense is problem solving. And I love to identify problem and figure out what the solution is. It, I, I really get a lot of enjoyment. So you could call that creativity and, and you might not be wrong, but I don't, I don't look, or at least I don't look at it that way that it's necessarily creative. Um, although you have to get creative to solve problems. I look at it more as an issue of problem solving as opposed to creative to me is a painter, is a musician, um, someone that, that is fabricating something out of thin air that didn't exist. Um, and, and maybe it's just my perspective, but I don't look at that as what I'm doing. I'm looking at maybe I'm creating problems that no one else is identifying. And so that allows me to look for a solution that most people aren't going to look for. Um, but I look at it as, as problem solving. And a lot of the problems I create are, it doesn't get up early enough. It doesn't go fast enough. It doesn't turn well enough. Um, and with, with winging coming into the sport, okay, what are the issues going on there? What needs to be resolved, you know? Mm -hmm. So a lot of my creativity is, is, is more a function of problem solving and coming, maybe having creativity of coming up with a solution. So let's move that now with that framework of, of design. And let's talk about what you're doing now in downwind. And I know there's going to be some sensitive things here. You don't want to talk about, and that's okay, but yep, you're changing the way that I look at down downwind and right now. And, um, you've been leading in that area of the sport you know, throughout the whole duration of, of foiling. Um, and you're posting mm -hmm. a lot of videos. So maybe you can talk about anything, the way that you're seeing that landscape now. And actually, you know, one of the conversations that we had a while ago had to do with how to look at the wind swell through the water and, and wh where to go and when to jump off in, in different moments. And then Matt Costa came on the, on the podcast and he, he brought the science to that, which was a great conversation as well. And yep. 
it was cool to to have your real world experience then be backed up by science and his mind was kind of blown it, it was a good it was a good moment on the show but what other nuggets are you seeing and and how are you seeing gear for downwind um because it's something that i'm definitely trying to take on as much as i possibly can and i, I know so many other folks are let me try and I just heard about four questions there. So let me try and nail a couple of the early Just talk ones. about downwinding or we're good. <laughs> well, the, the Matt Costa thing, I, I thought his podcast was, was fantastic. And while I was aware of most of the stuff he was talking about, I didn't have the depth of understanding that, that he explained. So that was really helpful. I learned a couple things that I was completely unaware of. So that was fantastic. And and then probably what most people are thinking of is his comment in regards to um, how I came up with V-bottom being more advantageous versus flat or concave, um, which most people probably go, oh, you know, he's going against what Dave thinks. I think it's fantastic. I love being challenged because it makes me analyze my own concepts and thoughts and maybe I need to go back to the lab and, and prove things to myself again. So I, I, I like being challenged. I appreciate people's skepticism because it only makes you, it, it, it either punches holes in what you believe. And most of what we think we know really is only beliefs. And, and so if you have a belief that's flawed, there's a lot of other things that can be flawed or wrong because of it. So I, I do appreciate skepticism and challenging everything. My experience with, with V versus concave in terms of, of boards is, um, and, and let me first say in planing holes, I'm all in on concave. I'm a full concave guy, even to this day. And I used to hate V in my boards, um, in regards to surfboards um, and, and SUPs and stuff like that. But an extreme example, if people want to do this experiment at home, is take your cereal bowl and a large mixing bowl. Fill it up with water. Take your cereal bowl with, with how you would normally hold it if you were going to fill it up with cereal, dip it into the water, and pull it out. I suspect it, it will pull a little bit of water out with it, um, but not an extreme amount. Now, dip the cereal bowl underwater, turn it upside down, and pull it out again. It will pull a tremendous amount of water out with it, right? That is the extreme version of concave versus V. So, And, and before, go, before I go any further... Do you understand what I'm describing? I, I do. And what he was saying on the show, and I'm just reiterating what he said, because I actually am a huge believer in V. And I use, on, on the bottom of the boards that I design, I use very subtle V with chines. Um, and it's the, the best skipping boards that there are. And I've been testing. I test a lot of gear, so you guys know. And there's nothing that mm -hmm. skips off the water better. Now, there's boards that are kind of better in the foam and for tracking and things like that. But... Um, my next design kind of marries everything together. It's pretty beautiful. I've been working on it for a little bit. Anyways, um, 
what he was saying is that there is a difference in doing that test um, with and without velocity. So it behaves different. Uh, the concave will behave different and release differently if you were to do that holding it over the side of a boat uh, going 15 miles, 10 miles an hour, or in right. uh, uh, just sitting there in a lake. And so that was the point that he was making um, on the show. But I, I'm a believer in V. I've, I've proven it to myself a ton of times. Okay, so let me just finish the bowl experiment yeah. and why that is, right? Okay. Water cannot release until something can come in and replace it. That something is generally air. So if the outsides of your device are the lowest point of that device, until the air can come in and replace the water and its bond to that surface, it's going to remain connected. As soon as you raise the bowl high enough, air can get in, replace the water. The water obviously releases and it sloshes back into the bowl. Now, my experience with that, with that dynamic is speed only increases that effect. And again, I want to quickly say I have zero uh, classical or technical scientific um, learning. All of my learning has been through practical experience. And one of the practical experiences learning this lesson was one day we were towing my surf canoe, four-man surf canoe, up to Piahi to, to go try and tow in and ride some waves with it. And I noticed at about 10 to 12 miles an hour, the canoe went through the water extremely leak, um, very little drag, and very little spray. As soon as I got the canoe up to about 18, 20 miles an hour, it was like there was a fire hose connected to the sides of the canoe and just shooting water 10 feet up in the air. Um, and there was a massive difference in the hydrodynamics of what was going on. And so I started you know, driving the jet ski at different speeds to try and figure out what was going on and just watching the canoe. And what I realized was a round surface, um, when it goes through the water, the water wants to stay attached and even more so as you increase the speed. Creating lift. So that water can make that water can make its way and stay adhered to the surface around a corner and actually travel up above its natural level, um, and thus creating the sort of the fountain that was coming off the sides of my canoe. And it was sort of that aha moment that, oh, okay, round corners and displacement are really efficient up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. And and then a whole new set of dynamics kicks in, and, and thus you want the edges to create that release point so the water can't make it around a curve, um, which was the converse side of that whole lesson that I learned. And again, most of, most of my knowledge and experience is all through um, – situations like that were sort of half happenstance um or mistakes that i learned along the way so yeah I, I have no formal scientific training it's all um practical experience and knowledge which i think accounts for a lot because a lot of times theoretical knowledge uh doesn't always apply in real life so there's advantages to both i think um 
boy, I got sucked down a rabbit hole there. The question. That's <laughs> no, all good. Um, yeah, in my experience, and, and what I do is I write a lot of different boards and I always film in um, 60 frames per second. So you can go back and you can look at touch points and how the water is interacting with either the bottom or a rail in a turn. And so part of my process for understanding what boards are doing, I, I did this a lot when I was designing stand-up boards and and now I, I still do it, you know, in designing foil boards, although I, I don't really make any for anyone yet, but I, I might at some point. But yeah. um, I'm just a fan. I just love the design well, process. But I you, remember your your question and, and, and where the downwinding aspect. Right. If if you don't mind me carrying on before I completely forget. Go, go, go. My next thing. Um, downwinding. Okay, so what what has enabled me to make a lot of advancements in the last year was my vision that prone downwinding would open up this untapped resource to all these prone foilers which at the time, you know, a couple of years ago, seemed like was the biggest aspect of our sport, sport and where most of the growth was happening. And, you know, I could see the enthusiasm um, from all the proners to want to foil and how much fun they were having. And, you know, I was more at the beginning of my downwind experience and starting to understand how much fun downwind foiling was and, and how incredible it is to ride for you know, nine, 10, or however much space you have to work with the whole time. And so I really got on this quest to try and make downwind foiling accessible to all the proners. I was met with a lot of disappointment and, and frustration and just having my ass kicked a couple of times on designs that I thought, oh, this, this is going to make the difference. This will, this will be the breakthrough that everyone will will be able to do this and, and horribly wrong. And after a couple of those frustrations and, that, and basically giving up for periods of time and then having some little thing come along that would inspire me again, um, would get me going down that course and I'd forget the frustration and the failure. I'm like, no, okay, I, I can figure this out. And I could I came to the realization I can only make so much progress with the board design. Ultimately, I can't get the board going fast enough to catch the swells that are traveling through open ocean um, like you would with a, with a wave or a, a normal breaking wave along the shoreline. And I realized what, what was happening with a normal wave is it's slowing down. The bottom is causing it to slow down, and that's what, you know, causing it to break. One of the things that Matt talked about. But out in the ocean, there is nothing to slow that swell down. There is no drag. It's going to continue to move, um, I think, faster than, well, about the same, but at times faster. Um, or it will seem faster because the angles might be less. So you're not getting the acceleration um, that you need like you normally would on a wave that stands up and gets steeper. So I realized with board design, I can only make so much progress. At a certain point, I've got to be able to accelerate to higher speeds and more quickly. I tried the web gloves. 
they kind of worked. Um, they were, there was a noticeable difference, but not significant. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember looking at my SUP paddles and thinking, boy, I need, that's the kind of acceleration I need. And I think I cut a couple of paddles off. My first hand paddles were cut off um, SUP paddles that uh, I strapped to the back of my hand um, thinking, okay, this, maybe this will be it. And when I got out there and I realized that when they're on the back of your hand, you can't bend your wrist anymore. But so there was there was a flaw in my design and that you can't stand up because your wrist can't bend, but I could paddle with them. And it became really obvious. Whoa, paddles, duh, canoes, stand ups, you know, they're using paddles. Why the heck wouldn't I use a paddle? So I put them on the other sides of my hand. Um, the aha moment, the light went off. They were way more effective than anything I could do board wise. Um, and one one of the comparisons I've made is to going to the moon. Is there any practical application to figuring out how to go to the moon? Are we all of a sudden going to take vacations on the moon? No, there isn't. But the technology that's developed along the way to get to the moon is where the gold is, right? And that's kind of what I realized. Stand up, or not stand up, prone downwind foiling is still really difficult no matter how you slice it but now you can actually do it with the hand paddles and so there was a time last year in the middle of covid when i was doing a bunch of runs by myself um that i just dedicated myself to figuring out the whole prone downwind thing and i increased the size of my paddles i figured out that i can i can sort of pump on my knees and that was a big breakthrough because I figured out on an SUP or stand-up downwind foiling you get to pump and paddle and I never really figured out that's what made it so doable but when you're proning you can pump or you can paddle you don't get both of them and when I discovered getting on my knees kind of brought back a little bit of that pumping and paddling it was like oh okay so that's why you'll see you know, some of the pictures of when I'm paddling on my knees to go, you know, quote unquote prone, you're not actually prone anymore, but, um, yeah, some of those breakthroughs were, were big. Some of the board design stuff, uh, will be incorporated into my next round of designs that'll come out this summer. So I'm less inclined to share all the details of that, but, uh, it, it, it completely changed um, my objectives and what I was trying to achieve with my boards. So my boards coming out this summer will be much more uh, efficient at coming out of the water at, at that initial glide. Um, to me, there's nothing planing about the boards for foiling. If you're planing on your board, you're not doing it right. <laughs> Because the foils are getting so efficient, you should be able to come up onto your foil um, pre-planing speeds. So to me, and using that as my sort of criteria, uh, I really focused on creating boards that had a, 
a low-end initial acceleration and efficiency that allowed me to get the foil engaged sooner and then release the water as quickly as possible so that I wasn't fighting myself and trying to get off the water and the foil could be more effective at a lower speed. Ooh, let me stop and take a breath. <laughs> um, you know, that's something that I've incorporated into riding smaller boards. It, my buddies kind of joke around, they call it like the worm or something, but I will paddle and almost chest pump as I'm catching a wave on really yep. small boards to get the, to get the foil to take, to give me extra leaders essentially to give more uh, float to the board and, and then pop up on one of those, on one of those pumps. Um, it works. Yeah. Well, the, the foil is, even though the board, the, even though the board isn't off the water, the, as soon as the foil starts to have water flow over it, it's engaged and it's starting to create lift. A lot of the drag that comes from your board, it doesn't have to be a foil board, it can be surfboard, stand-up, whatever, is that downward force into the water that creates a lot of drag. So as soon as you start to alleviate that downward force and that drag, you're eliminating drag, which allows the board to start to accel accelerate through the water more um, and thus lead to flying. But the point being, as soon as you get that foil engaged in those little pumps that sort of accentuate that water flowing over the foil creates a little more lift, reduces the drag. You can accelerate a little bit because of it. And, and we're talking, you know, half a mile an hour, not even half, less, a quarter, an eighth of a mile an hour can have a, a pretty effective uh, result in, in the amount of lift that's created. You know, so yeah, something I do a lot when I'm walking. Oh, go ahead. Uh, anyway, I, I was just going to keep spewing on. I mean, th there's that aspect of it. In fact, back to the downwinding, um, I had a realization the other day because it seems like we're tapping into this energy to ride ride the open ocean swells, and you know, you're you're trying to connect all the dots to keep yourself up on foil but i realized like every other surfing sport essentially um it is a gravity sport which means we're being pulled down and if we create a situation that allows us to keep falling down or rolling or surfing downward we maintain speed which allows us to fly so the whole idea is is to create keep creating that situation where gravity is working with you. And yes, we're tapping into the energy of the, of the waves and I mean waves are energy and that that's literally what they are. Um but it's also a gravity sport, which means you have to set up a scenario where you're sliding down. And that was kind of the big one for me. Did that change the way that you it seems look at the landscape obvious. of? Yeah. Did that change the way that you look at the landscape of of downwinding? Are you are you looking for downhill pockets versus looking for ridges now? Um. No, not necessarily. But it it gave me a little more insight. Um. And just sort of broadened my understanding or or sort of definition 
mm-hmm. of, of what I was writing and, and what I was trying to set up um, by connecting the bumps. You know, another little insight that kind of like the magician that tells the secret of how to cut a body in half, the other magicians are going to be pissed at me. I've started to, and I've known this from the SUP days, there's these things and everybody might have their own term for it. I call them wormholes. Matt described them actually in, in his podcast where two sets of waves interact with each other. And if they're moving at different angles, they can either accentuate the lift and create a taller, steeper wave, or they can cancel each other out by filling in uh, the, the low spots. And what I figured out, if you can come into one of those, areas where two sets of swells are crossing each other and they're canceling each other out, it's an easier avenue to jump forward in those swells. So in a normal situation where you're, let's say, riding the second or third wave, um, while it might be creating good speed for you, it might not be enough speed to actually launch yourself over the wave that's just in front of you. When you find these spots with two sets interacting and they're canceling each other out, if you can come into it with really good speed, you can actually weave your way up through these two sets of swells, technically jumping forward in the waves to get to the front of the swell with much less effort and, and less uphill incline. You know, so you, it takes some work. You've got to pump. And if you've got the speed and, and the pump, you can maintain. And you're getting you're getting little bursts on the front side of these things, but you're not having those big uphills to get over to get on the next one in front. And so while I initially learned that in SUP downwinding, I had an opportunity to really experiment. I got left behind back to your experience or your story earlier, trying to ride a smaller foil. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a tough time getting up. Everyone got ahead of me, and I was like, "Oh, you know, pedal to the metal. I got to catch up." And so I started utilizing what I call wormholes because um, they sort of launch you into a different space, um, and really started playing with them a lot more and trying to figure out even more so what was going on with them and how to take advantage of them. Uh, really opened my eyes to how beneficial they can be. So. Um, I guess you know, when I start talking about downwinding, I kind of think of James Casey's explanations a lot and, and his podcast was really good and getting people excited about it and, and explaining, uh, just how much fun it is. Yeah. I, I can't wait to really dive into downwinding. And I think that for us in Florida and Pedigo and I just recorded a podcast, which will come out here a couple of days before yours. I've been pretty busy this last little bit, but I think that the, and we talk about this on the show, um, I think that prone downwinding is going to be our answer because what happens is we'll get good shore runner conditions when the wind will switch on shore, but we don't have any access points to get out into the ocean once the waves, once it gets bigger. So I don't think that Mm -hmm. you're going to get a sup out when we have real downwind conditions because the shore break, you know, the the, the sets are going to be, you know, overhead on the beach. Um, and really consistent, you know, six second period, you know, or like eight at eight, something like that. And 
I think the prone downwind, something that I can punch through surf, maybe not even duck dive, but to get through the surf, but then still have the volume to paddle quarter mile, half mile offshore is going to be our answer. And something that he said um, when, when we were recording is uh, we need to get you or James or someone who is, is, you know, really sees the matrix when it comes to downwinding to come and, and mm-hmm. kind of help us figure out the right way to approach our coastline because it's not, it, it's not similar to, or, or it's not apples to apples for what you guys are doing because we don't have the same, you know, heavy side shore conditions where there's good ways to get out to the wind line. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, well, yeah, with, with downwinding to touch a little more on that, my, I don't have a stand up board or a prone downwind board anymore that it's the same board. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to share a little bit with the listeners, my current downwind boards are, between 6'3 and 6'6 six, six, and between 23 and 22 inches wide. And while that might seem really narrow uh, initially, especially if you're a stand-up paddler, I, I came to the realization a little while ago that the width for stand-up paddling is, is a function of paddling out, meaning you need that width to create the stability to paddle out standing up. And I thought, boy, that's stupid. Why would you make a downwind board that paddles out well, but then doesn't catch a swell as well? And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop designing boards that paddle out well, but rather catch swells well. And that's when I realized I can sit down on the paddle out, get into position. If the volume's there, I can stand up, immediately engage your paddle so you have something to stabilize yourself. And now I've got a board that catches swells way easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and because it's narrower, once I'm up and riding, I can be more aggressive with my turns and have less less board to manage um, from a turning sense. And the foil takes but away a But you have to be willing to accept a little length. You know, you, you do have to be willing, like I said earlier, there's always a compromise and the compromise is a little bit of length, but you have to realize in turning when you're out downwinding, it's not the same kind of turns you're making on a wave where you really have tight arc. Turning downwinding is, is more open carving. Um, while you can do quick and flashy turns, it doesn't serve a lot of function in setting up the next bump and and a lot of the turns that you do in downwinding do serve a a certain functionality to them. And so the turns aren't as tight, which allows you to use a longer board, um, which enables you to catch swells easier and get up easier, which is one of the main hurdles for most people is, is getting up on a swell. Um, So yeah, that, that was kind of a, an aha moment that my boards that were, you know, say six feet or five ten by twenty six or twenty seven, mostly were designed so I could paddle out standing up. <laughs> it's like, uh, why would I want to do that? And, and that comes back to what I said even earlier: you got to be willing to get over your ego of sitting down on the paddle out and, and 
people going, you know, why is he sitting down or why is he cheating or however. You, it's like, I don't care. Be called <laughs> whatever you want, but I get up easier than you. So it, that comes, that, that really is losing that fear of people's judgment and being, you know, criticized and all that things. And, and that's just a specific example that opens the door to uh, a more effective thinking or line of thinking. So I've got about 25 minutes left. Are you good for that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I want to switch you it up. You cut me off whenever you want. I, I, I start getting a little bit of oral diarrhea going. But, you know, I love talking about this, and it's so, such fun talking with you about it. So no, this is, whenever this you need is to amazing. cut me off. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of nuggets in here. What, what I was going to say also is that um, the foil adds a lot of stability. So you can get away with a narrower board and have because you don't have that same lateral stability provided by the width of the board because you have a keel essentially which helps in absolutely in, in stand up that's, um, that's a really important point mm -hmm. um all right so let's switch let's switch gears here a little bit and you know you've been on the show we've talked about flow um we've talked a lot extensively about foiling and surfing and back in the day we talked a lot about sup um and actually uh Dave was just featured in a SUP journal article on longboard SUP, which was which was really cool that um, helped stand up journal do um, Dave and, and Colin and Fisher Grant. And it was a cool article. So if you guys also SUP, check out that last uh, SUP journal article that Dave was featured in. But I want to switch more to Dave Kalama life plan, because I feel like you are doing a lot of, to, to, to still be so passionate, be in the water every day, you're doing a lot of things right. And so I think that, that we haven't explored that yet. I think it would be fun to explore that. Um, and let's start with, if you had a mission statement, what would it be? Like, let's start top down, like with global Dave Kalama. Um, you know, at this point, and it's, the answer is very relative to my age and where I am at at this point in life. And and for right now, I've come to the realization that this ride isn't going to last forever. And and there's it's one thing to know it or be aware of it. It's another thing to truly accept it. And I'm grapp grappling with truly accepting it that the ride doesn't last forever. And in that realization, um, combined with the amount of fun I've had and how much I enjoy it and appreciate it, it's made me double down on that prioritizing it, appreciating it, and understanding it's not going to last forever. And so... I feel like I've sort of got house money now with that realization and I need to make the most of it because the level at which I participate in most of my water sports um, really provides a lot of enjoyment for me to, to kind of mm -hmm. encapsulate it in one word. How do you, and oh, go ahead. With, with, the whole COVID experience that we just went through, um, it magnified that even more for me 
how important that water time, um, and this, this extends far beyond foiling, but how important that water time is not only to my enjoyment and fulfillment in life, but my psychological health, which has never really been an issue for me. Um, and, and I would say at this point, it's, it's not a major issue, but like we all just experienced in COVID and wondering, having the future so uncertain and having to analyze where we are and what direction we're headed and da 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 on down the line, just I'm sure very common for almost all of us. Um, I, I started to appreciate how important that time in the water was and how uh, incredibly vital it was to me maintaining a, a perspective or an outlook on life that was positive as opposed to watching the news and getting sucked down these negative holes of, you know, we're screwed and it's all going to hell in a handbasket, which, you know, it's it kind of, I did it to myself a lot of times over watching news, but I like being informed. Um, but yet you have to set it down and focus on what's, around you and the most important things obviously your family your your the well-being of your family and then you can start looking at things like the well-being of yourself and what's going to help me be the best version of myself and that's an outlook on life that's positive and not all negative and what's the best way for me to achieve that go down get in that water ride away paddle around do something like that um and so i i uh, developed and learned how important that was on, on levels that I never appreciated before. So that's my focus, honestly, is, is understanding that, um, trying to create a situation in my life where I can maximize that time. But like everybody else, adulting in reality at time, not fun. But it's reality. You you got to do what you got to do to to keep the boat afloat. And so those times in the water enabled me to to deal with reality and provide a, a living and do the emails and the phone calls and travel and you know all, all normal stuff. Um, but with a with a good outlook or a good outlook, excuse, excuse me, mm-hmm. uh, and and keep a positive um, sort of. Pre- perspective at all on it all and keep it all in in a good frame of mind and and don't let certain aspects of life overwhelm you um because they they very quickly can and i'm a believer in momentum and if your momentum is going in the wrong direction it will continue more so in that direction and vice versa if you got it going in the right direction that's that's momentum in the right direction and it tends to continue and and expand and and get greater but it's all sort of predicated on the the direction of your momentum um there's so many ways that we could go i used to be really superstitious about the momentum thing dave i um if i had two or three things go wrong for me in the morning i would cancel everything important i had to do for the rest of the day I just figured it was an off day. Things weren't breaking right. And then on days where everything went right at the beginning, I would double down and try to knock out all of the great stuff that, that was big and consequential. Um, yeah. 
So, man, you 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 went through a whole lot there, and there's a lot of things to to dive into. How do you manage water time and and family time, and does that ever come into conflict for you? Oh, massively, <laughs> and I know that's not unique to me in any way, shape, nope. or form. But I am by no means a master of it. Um, and quite honestly, if you look at my life and you look at those accomplishments um, or that amount of time I've spent in the water, there's no other way you can conclude that this person is selfish. It, I mean, it's obvious. I, I, you have to have a certain level of selfishness to, to achieve certain goals. And I think most professional athletes in any given sport, in any given endeavor, maybe it's not even sports at all, but, but things that aren't just an activity and you dedicate your life to, you have to adopt a certain level of selfishness to continue to dedicate that much time to any given thing. And so as I get older, I have to acknowledge first that then acknowledge that maybe perhaps that's a problem <laughs> not an asset at this stage and then start to modify how I do find the balance you know and I say the word balance so begrudgingly because I've always heard you know oh you got to have everything in balance and I was like balance balance the hell with that you're into something go all in well come to find out it actually is an important word and there is a lot of substance to it and to your question exactly finding the balance of my water time my family time uh working um and i'm getting better at it quite honestly um and, and sort of back to one thing that popped in my mind when you were talking about momentum is acceptance and and that's while it's not new it's not been prevalent in all my life um learning to accept things and be okay with that and it and that will help you become less selfish mm -hmm. i think um you know and and combine that with what's really important to you uh, and not being a sponsored athlete anymore. Um, I have, want to, need to focus more on my family. Those relationships, understand how important they are, right? Um, and, and start to accept that's going to come at the cost of water time. But with the understanding, I now kind of know or starting to realize that those things are the most important, not me riding a wave, <laughs> you know, which, which is part of letting go of that selfishness. Right. Because as, as, as a water sports person, you know, that in order for me to do a lot of the things I've done, that has to be present, but to be a good father, to be a good provider, um, Selfish, selfishness can't be your focal point. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there being all in. And 
you know, one of my good friends who I've spent a lot of time with, he is the first guest on the show, Josh Waitskin, who is probably is the um, epitome of, of, of being all in. We, we talk about this a lot in that there's so few people who go all in into things. And you're definitely someone who goes all in. And, you know, I'm a believer that kind of the most beautiful moments in life be it in the water or with family, it's it's when you're all in. Can you talk to how that term relates to you, um, and you know how you see that? Yeah, you know, so <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with the term FOMO. Yep. Right, fear of missing out, and you can be in the best. Like it happens to me all the time. I can be out at caught off on a perfect day with the water as glassy as can be and head high waves and it's amazing and i'll still wonder god should i be towing up at sprex right now is it even better up there (laughs) you know what i mean (laughs) and so i'm a victim of it too but back to my earlier statement about acceptance and and trying and coming to grips with accepting you are where you are be there you can't surf sprex if you're at ka'a so surf ka'a you know what i mean um and i used to say this to racers all the time when they'd get in a, a duel with somebody that's right next to them it's so common to get focused on the guy next to you when you're racing and i would tell them you can't paddle his board but you can paddle your board so get off of his board, back on your board, and focus on you, right? So a lot of what I'm having to do now is learn to walk my talk. <laughs> um, and it's not its not easy. I, I'll be the first to admit, you know, I've got a lot more talk than probably walk, but I am working on it um, like everyone. Um, but, yeah, a lot of, a lot of that all in um, and, and being where you are is accepting that you are where you are. So you might as well be there because no matter how hard you focus on something else, you're not going to be there. And if you want to get the most out of where you're at in the decision you made, be it right or wrong, um, you know, and back to should I be at Ka'a or should I be at Sprex, but I'm at Ka'a. Well, if I want Ka'a to be better than Sprex, then I need to be there and ride the waves I ride to make it, better than me thinking how good Sprex is. <laughs> uh, how do you approach aging? Um, you know, something that I think about all the time is, you know, I'm foiling better right now. I'm probably better at foiling than I've been at any other water sport, but there's going to be a time when maybe that trend reverses. Right. And so I almost feel yep. a scarcity right now of I've got to get this while I'm still fit and I can still progress and I can, and it, it, it's created an urgency to be out there whenever I can train as hard as I can at all times. And I love that, but I, but I don't know when that window closes and, and that scares me. So you start working out harder, you start, start training harder. And, you know, that's a lot different than I was five or 10 years ago. Um, that mindset, yeah. how, how, what's your mindset right now in regards to aging and, and what are you doing? to prolong because I, I mean you're foiling 
right now probably you know as good as anyone on the planet like um that can't go on forever you know as you're saying acceptance to use a driving analogy i'm tailgating you right now (laughs) i'm in your lane and i am right on your ass i'm exactly in the same place i'm of the realization this won't last forever i gotta get the most of it there is that sense of urgency um but I'm also realizing that accepting getting older and finding the, the reason I enjoy foiling so much is because it makes me feel good, right? It, it, you get those endorphins. Oh my God, this is amazing. But so much of that enjoyment comes from your perspective, your interpretation of what's going on. Do I enjoy this? Okay, yes, I do. How much do I enjoy it? All that's based on your interpretation or your perspective, right? So now the trick for me is becoming not purely focusing on the level of performance while I am still highly focused on that. I'm starting to realize the trick is going to become how do I keep enjoying this as much as I ever have. And so that's sort of where my focus is, is in that realization, I don't get to maintain the same level of performance, you know, on into the sunset or for another 10 or 20 years. That doesn't mean that I can't enjoy this as much as I've ever done. Cause that, that's not dictated by age or, or your physical uh, attributes. How much of the enjoyment right now, is pushing the sport and um, being a part of this evolution? Um, It's not as big as it once was because I don't look at myself as pushing the sport per se anymore. Um, Guys like my son, um, you know, you could go on down the list. James, Zane, whoever you want to pick that I they're pushing the sport um, in, in its traditional sense. Mm-hmm. I'm focused on pushing myself now, getting the best out of myself as much as possible. And the realities that I have to deal with um, and other things that, that take my time. So my contributions now and what I really focus on and not even that much is contributing in, in the equipment essentially mm-hmm. or technique or insight as to how to learn things. And, and so I, I still think of myself as a contributor to the sport, um, but not in the way I used to. How much of your enjoyment is coming from the learning process and the, the path of, of understanding versus just the art of riding waves? Um, a large portion comes from learning yep. a, a very large portion. Um, you know, and that's, I think that's true of anybody. A, lo- a lot of self-satisfaction comes from progressing and feeling like as an individual, you're progressing and that, that, you know, is so kind of a self-fulfilling self-feeding process of, Oh, I got better. I feel better about myself. Let me try and improve more. So I feel better about myself again and 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 so 
you know, I'm, I'm in that cycle as much as anybody. Um, but a lot of the things I'm trying to learn aren't as physical in nature, let's say, but like developing strategies for downwinding, understanding more of what is going on and how to take advantage of that knowledge. Um, how to, you know, one example is I initially for the first couple of years of downwinding speed and time were so much a, a focal point of that, that endeavor and, and my short term goals. And now I'm finding I get as much or more enjoyment from focusing on turns and lines and these little subtle things and seeing how little I can pump and yet keep connecting all the dots I need to, to stay on foil. So it's, 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 I guess, finding mind games to play with myself in a sense while I'm out on the water, uh, especially when in regards to downwind foiling, cause there's so much decision-making going on and, and, kind of speculating what you think is going to happen and making decisions based upon that. And when you get it right, it feels really good, but it, it initially seems like so much chaos out there. But um, as you get a better understanding, you see patterns form and then understanding those patterns, making decisions on those patterns, having them pay off, um, putting yourselves in different situations with maybe even more subtle patterns or, things and then and experimenting with uh, different approaches and different situations uh, to, to keep kind of deciphering really what the perfect line looks like, you know, and, and does a perfect line even exist? Um, I think yes, <laughs> quite <laughs> honestly, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, I, I almost am hesitant to say that, but I had an experience once where I had this gal do some body work on me and it was extremely painful. And she was digging really deep into my spine and in between my vertebrae. In any case, I went out and I did a downwind run kind of shortly after this experience. And I literally saw in the water, the line I was supposed to take. And I've heard of golfers having this experience where they get on the green they look at their ball, they look at the hole, and they can see the line the ball needs to go on in order to put it in the cup. I had that experience once, only once, and all the times I've ever downwind, only once have I ever experienced that clarity where literally the line I was supposed to be on presented itself. And I've looked for it so many times. <laughs> but. Anyway, it was a pretty amazing experience. I want to see that one day. I haven't seen that yet. Um, this has been epic, Dave. I I really appreciate it. This is um, I'm gonna. This is one that I'm gonna listen to again because there's a lot of gems in here. Uh, what do you want to leave folks with? Cool. Um, you know, since this is kind of the the foiling podcast, um, I think foiling is a great mechanism to really push yourself outside your comfort zone. And, and then even if you get over that initial hump and, and 
force yourself to grow by being uncomfortable, um, which is which is typically a byproduct of being in com- uncomfortable situations, is, is growth. There's so many nuances and levels and directions and places to take this sport and what it has to offer everyone as individuals um, that it it. It sort of reminds me of stand-up in a way in that it has so much to offer anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a higher level of engagement and, and a, a more technically skilled endeavor, but it's much more attainable than you would ever think. And the benefits that will come from even just trying, um, you, you want to, and, and my experience is one of the best ways to learn is, is to release the expectation so you can more um be aware be in the moment um and be more spontaneous and allow your body to kind of adjust and learn as as you're going through these experiences and so the more you can set down your expectations allow yourself to be uncomfortable um and foiling i don't care how good of an athlete you are it will make you feel uncomfortable but the rewards of the growth and the development and the experiences you'll have and the vibe uh, amongst the foiling community right now is so positive and such a great thing for, for all of us um, that I highly encourage not only the listeners that foil, but, but try and keep spreading it as much as possible and, and get that friend that's maybe skeptical. Hey, and you might have to play the long game. If he says no one time, Maybe he'll say yes on the 15th time, but, but ask nicely. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's all I got. I, I think it would improve um, vibes in beach towns tremendously, at least kind of Florida where there's spread out sandbars and crowds aren't an issue and stuff. But it feels much more infinite than a surf lineup to me. Yes, 100% agree. Well, Dave, thank you very much. Kalama Performance is uh, where you can check out Dave's boards. Um, what's your Instagram, Dave? Uh, Dave Kalama at Dave Kalama. Okay. Uh, and it's kind of a sunset silhouette picture of me kicking out of a wave on a stand-up board. Um, any, anywhere but, uh, else folks can support you? Camps, anything like that right now? Uh, that's pretty much it. You know, I, I play the social media game, but I'm not passionate about it. But, uh, any questions you want to fire either through you or to me directly, please feel free. I'm, I'm happy to answer most of them. Um, and Eric, I want to say thanks. I really appreciate this, this opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for coming on. And this podcast that you've created for all of us to share our ideas and, and have a real, you're, you're building the community essentially you know, in reality, that's what you're doing. So thank you very much for doing that. Yeah, man. Thank you. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's been super fun to do. Um, and you know, I, I mentioned this at the beginning, you were, I asked you where you get your inspiration from a lot of me doing the podcast is how I get my inspiration. Cause you know, once a week I get to hop on with someone who's way better than me at stuff and hear their path. And it, it makes me want to go out and do stuff. So it's, it's really cool. I hope that does it does that for everybody else as well. So, Dave, thank you very much. And um, my pleasure. Yeah. Aloha. This is the Progression Project podcast, deconstructing foiling, flow, and the learning process with your host, Eric Anthemson.